Are you, Are you ready? ready? Let's go! Don't you sometimes just want to talk about everything? You know, there's days when you can just talk, 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 about anything. Need to sit back and chat about nothing at all? Nothing but Julie. Coming at you with fun and creative topics and interviews. Did you hear Julie's podcast? She's got the greatest topic. I did. I love it. Come join the chat about everything, anything, and nothing. So unwind and tune in to Nothing But Julie. Great topics and cool interviews. With some pretty awesome people. And now, without further delay, here's Nothing But Julie. Hello, everyone. This is Julie Schrager, your host of Nothing But Julie Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. You are in for a treat. I'm very excited to introduce you to Dr. Renee Exelbert, who is not only a licensed psychologist, but she is also a certified elite personal trainer. She received her BS from Cornell and her MA and PhD from NYU. She is the founding director of the Metamorphosis Center for Psychological and Physical Change, where she integrates psychotherapy and exercise with a focus on the mind-body connection. Such an incredibly unique thing that she does with that. Uh, She also served as staff psychologist at the Cancer Center for Kids at NYU Winthrop Hospital Cancer Center, where she worked with children and adolescents diagnosed with cancer. And we went to high school together. Welcome, my friend. Hello there. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining. I I know that it it took us a while to get here because you're so incredibly busy, which I can appreciate. So I'm I'm happy for the time. Um, So why don't we just dive right in? Um, Renee is a breast cancer survivor. And that ultimately led you to becoming an author, a certified nutritionist, a certified personal trainer, a figure competitor. Oh my goodness. All of these things from (laughs) breast cancer. Oh my goodness. I, I, I think that it's incredible. And lastly, and, and not only an author, mom, wife, and all that other wonderful stuff. Um, so I I'd like to ask you, Renee was, and is, I guess, was exercise uh, a coping mechanism for you during your journey with breast cancer? So I have always been athletic. Um, I, you know, that's always been something that's been part of my life. But um, literally the second that I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I started trying to find ways to empower myself. And one of those ways was obviously through uh, literature and research. Um, I had already been working at a pediatric cancer center. I literally left a pediatric cancer center after six years of working there. And um, two months later, I was diagnosed with my own breast cancer. So mm-hmm. I already knew a whole bunch about, um, about cancer, about uh, psychological coping mechanisms. So I already knew a whole bunch of that. But you know, the thing that happens when you have cancer is that you uh, feel betrayed by your body. Um, and so you know, I was trying really hard to figure out a way to get back in sync. Uh, so through research, you know, I knew that um, exercise was super important. I knew that food and nutrition was really important. I literally changed my eating habits immediately. Um, I used to be a sugar addict. I would inject Laffy Taffy like, you know, no <laughs> drug you've ever known. Oh, um, Laffy Taffy. Huh? Laffy wow. Taffy, baby. <laughs> And, um, you know, and so I just, I really changed things. In fact, I remember when I was in the hospital, my brother um, came with this giant bag of uh, gummy bears and, you know, and chocolate raisins and all the good stuff that he knew I loved. And I literally, you know, the moment that I was diagnosed, I saw that sugar feeds tumors. um, And so I really got rid of sugar. Um, And so exercise, yeah, became a really important uh, way for me to regain a sense of control over my body. And uh, the thing that was really neat was that I could tell my body to do something and then it would follow. And so it just allowed me to, you know, get back in sync. That's incredible. Uh, Was there one thing that you had learned about yourself or more than one thing throughout your journey? Wow. Um, So, you know, I would say that um, prior to having breast cancer, I was definitely much more of a perfectionist. Um, I was somebody who wasn't really 
uh, so comfortable with allowing myself to be vulnerable. Um, I was, you know, I was, I was much more competitive. Um, and so having breast cancer and, and receiving that diagnosis at 37 years old um, was really, really challenging because not only did it uh, really challenge my assumptions about, about youth and about strength and about power and perfection, um, but, you know, it also really challenged my uh, sense of femininity and beauty and all of these things. And so I think if, if I have to say, like, you know, did I learn anything about myself? Um, I went through a, a tremendous journey that took many years um, where I, I really changed. You know, I, I saw that the things that make me who I am um, have really very little to do with my accomplishments, have very little to do with my physical appearance. Um, and so I just really learned that the things that make me who I am are the things that are deep within me that will always be with me. Um, and so I, I would say that that has really changed me as, as a human being. Um, and it's really impacted the way that I see the world and the way that I work with um, the patients who come to see me. Um, and so there's so many, I mean, there's so many major life changes that have occurred because of cancer, but I would definitely say that it was a journey. It wasn't something that happened immediately. You know, it was definitely a struggle that took a long period of time, but sort of when you come out of that storm, you look back and you're like, wow, you know, I've really changed. Sure. Um, you know, when I, when I was first diagnosed, um, some people knew that I had cancer and I, and I shared with people that I had cancer, but I really didn't share intimate details of, you know, my journey. Um, I was pretty private and I sort of marvel at the way now that like, I'll really tell anybody what I've been through. It's sort of shocking to me because, um, it just demonstrates such a, a dramatic change in the way that I see myself and the way that I see, um, the things that we struggle with, you know, the way that I see life in general. So, uh, for that, I'm very proud. And like I said, it, it really helps me um, be a better mother, wife, friend, psychologist, teacher, all of these things. Hmm. What an incredible transformation. I, I know um, a few people that have gone through the same journey as you. And oddly enough, what you just said is is so incredible. I, these people were very private as well. And it wasn't until with some of them, maybe 10 years later that they opened up and spoke about it. And yeah. it was, I think, exhilarating in, in a way or, you know, for lack of a better word for them to just be able to start opening up and talking about it. And I saw, I saw an incredible difference with many of them through their journeys too. And, and with these changes, one of the things that, um, came about was, uh, becoming a personal trainer after finding out how great exercise is, you know, and beneficial for mental health, do you have a certain mantra with your clients? By that, I mean, you know, is there a particular way that you would, would train your clients when it came to exercise and mental health? Yeah. So, um, you know, because I became so involved uh, with exercise before I became a personal trainer, um, you know, when I was working as a psychologist, I would have many people with whom I was working talk to me about depression or anxiety. And because I was so into exercise and because I knew, you know, all the tremendous benefits of exercise, I would start telling them that they should do squats and, you know, and, and uh, push-ups. And I found myself demonstrating to, to many <laughs> of my patients you know, the proper way to do a squat and, and push-ups. And then I realized like, I'm not licensed really to do this. Um, <laughs> and that was also part of my, you know, journey with becoming a personal trainer. I, I thought like, wow, this will be a neat thing to integrate into my um, psychology. And I, after I, I got my certification, I became, um, you know, I got certified in personal training and I became certified in nutrition as well. Mm -hmm. And I opened up this center called the Metamorphosis Center for Psychological and Physical Change. Um, it's my baby, one of my babies. And uh, it's, I think one of, I think it's probably the first place. I, I don't know of others uh, where um, I, I truly integrate psychotherapy and exercise. And, and the way that I do that is, um, something that's really unique. I, you know, I work with individual people on whatever issue they're struggling with, um, whether it be an adolescent who's being bullied or, you know, a woman who was just um, targeted, 
you know, at her job with sexual harassment and is leaving like so many different issues. And we, we, you know, first begin our work together with <clears throat> traditional psychotherapy, but then we integrate exercise and visual imagery. And so the way that that might play out is, um, for instance, somebody who was uh, trying to leave a very toxic work environment um, after really learning her story um, and hearing where she wanted to go in her life, we would then utilize exercise and visual imagery to sort of channel this, this new place. It sounds a little crunchy granola, um, you know, new age, blah, blah, blah. But essentially, you know, my office is half psychotherapy and half gym. And I would mm -hmm. have this person come to the bench press and she would lay down and do like chest flies. And we would literally, you know, she would close her eyes and she would think about like her core and bring the weights to her core, her heart. Sure. And she would think about, you know, where she has been and this sort of toxic place where she's been. And then she would literally open up into a chest fly and think about like the places where she wanted to go. And so sometimes we incorporate verbal mantras. Sometimes it's literally about just visualizing the place where you are and where, you know, psychologically you want to grow. And we use exercise and psychotherapy and visual imagery and sometimes verbal mantras to sort of move in that direction. So I have found it really beautiful work. Um, I know the people with whom I do this work think it's, you know, really empowering and beautiful as well. Um, so, you know, that's something um, unique and I, I really love it and I really believe in it. Um, and I also, you know, believe in the same paradigm with nutrition uh, that, you know, when we eat certain foods, it's not just the food that we're eating, it's really important to incorporate some visual imagery and some knowledge about the food in terms of what it's doing to our bodies. And so, you know, I don't just eat food anymore. Food has become a very mindful practice. Uh, so when I'm eating, I have, you know, literally researched hundreds of foods and uh, learned their, um, you know, mental health benefits, their physical benefits. So you know, if I'm eating walnuts, you know, I know that walnuts are anti-inflammatory. I know that, you know, there's serotonin in them that they can actually help with our mood. Um, you know, and so if I eat walnuts, I'm thinking about not only the health benefits that I get from walnuts, but I'm thinking about how it can like literally change my mood. And so every time I'm eating food, I'm having this, you know, experience in my mind um, where I'm thinking about like, how it's changing me, how it's empowering me. You know, when I eat broccoli, I'm thinking about how it's getting rid of estrogen in my body and that's helping fight away, you know, any kind of breast cancer. Um, so yeah, so, you know, when you're watching your family members eat, you know, they're just having their mac and cheese <laughs> and I'm in this la la land, um, you know, in the corner, like thinking about broccoli and estrogen. But, you know, it's, it's actually, it's very empowering. And I, I do believe that, um, you know, research in the future is really going to support uh, the fact that, you know, visual imagery when we eat and connect it with uh, information about food uh, can be really, really empowering and help us manifest a greater um, sense of physical and emotional health. Mm. My goodness, that sounds amazing. I, I, I am aware of the connection with food. It has, it's been a journey for me because I grew up in a house with, you know, sugar, 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 sugar. Mm. And it, it took me a really long time to, to really lower the amount yeah. of sugar. And yeah. I still, I will still have it. I, because I just can't well, stay it's away. Addictive. Yeah, it's, it's, addictive. It is addictive, but I've gotten to the point where I've gotten so much better, so much better. And now it's just kind of like a little treat here and there, but it yeah. took me a while, but I, but I did it. I was steadfast in my journey. Yay. I know, I know. I was so happy. And I still have sugar, <laughs> by the way, you know, like I, I still, you know, love my Sour Patch Kids, but <laughs> you know, it is like, it is so rare. Um, you know, it is so rare when I have them. And, and part of that was because, you know, I, I did, I became a personal trainer and I did this bodybuilding competition and like, I became very regimented with, you know, the, when I eat junk. Um, so I still have it because, you know, I, I don't think that deprivation is ever a good thing. And I think, you know, it's really, really important to, um, engage in mindful eating when you sort of listen to your body. So if my body wants Skittles, I'll give my body Skittles. But most of the time, my, my body wants broccoli. And I had read somewhere something about if you are in the mood for chocolate and you eat broccoli, it's almost like the same thing. Have you ever heard of that before? No, but this is cool. I, I like that. 
I, this, is, this is a cool thing. Wow. <clears throat> you know, it's funny coming, coming from someone who really just loved sugar more than food itself forever <laughs> ago. I remember being told this and I was like, yeah, okay, sure. And I have to tell you something, Renee, one day I tried it. I like eating raw vegetables, some kind of yogurt dip, maybe a little hummus. And I was in such a mood for chocolate. And I'm like, no, broccoli. Seriously. Wow. That and is- I ate. honestly, when I was eating, I'm like, this is not like chocolate. But then maybe like 15 minutes later, I did not feel that need for for chocolate or sugar. It was amazing. This is super, super cool. Can I, can I tell you a very, really funny story about broccoli? Yeah. yeah. You know, broccoli is like the topic of conversation now, now that you brought up broccoli (laughs) and chocolate, we have to talk about broccoli. (laughs) When I was growing up, I hated broccoli. I thought it was the most disgusting food known to human beings. (laughs) And I was probably about, I don't know, nine years old. My parents had visited the Dominican Republic and they brought me back this beautiful brown leather pocketbook. And this, you know, the very next day I went to my friend Stacy's house for a sleepover and we were sitting at the dinner table and Stacy's mother brought out this big tray of broccoli and she put this heaping tablespoon on my plate and I I was like (laughs) going to pass out. And she said, you can't leave the dinner table until you have the broccoli. And I looked at Stacy like with panic, deer in the headlights, like you've got like, and I said, Stacy, I can't eat the broccoli. Like I can't do it. And she's like, my mother's not going to let you leave the table until you have the broccoli. And I'm like, really, Stacy, I can't do this. And so her mother left and I, I, I didn't know what to do. I was panicked. And so I took a napkin and I loaded all of the broccoli into the napkin and I put it into this brand new, beautiful brown leather pocketbook. <laughs> and I ran to the bathroom and I dumped all the broccoli into the toilet. And I was like, you know, I, I was just so, it was such a terrifying experience. And I came back and I was, I was so happy that like I was done with it. I came back and there was more broccoli on my <laughs> plate. And Stacy's mother said, since you like broccoli so much, I gave you more. So I was, I was terrified because I came home with these green stains and this beautiful new bag. And I told my father, I was like, I'm so sorry, daddy, that like I ruined the pocketbook. And he thought it was the funniest story. And he (laughs) talked about it for years. And so here you are talking about (laughs) purporting the tremendous benefits of broccoli and how it's just like chocolate. And I will tell you, you know, broccoli is such my, it's my friend now. Now I've learned that it's like chocolate, but broccoli (laughs) to me is literally like one of my favorite foods. And just from, you know, a breast cancer perspective, it absorbs, it it literally gets rid of extra estrogen in your body. So it can literally fight off breast cancer. Um, And I also read that if you have caffeine past three or 4 p.m., and you have broccoli, it'll actually absorb the broccoli and take away the caffeinated effect in your body. So really? kudos cool. to broccoli. Yeah. Let's make a toast to broccoli. Toasting. Um, I have my yeah. tea. I have my there tea in go. my hand. There so I will go. not and have now broccoli. Whenever I want chocolate, I'm going to reach for broccoli. You have to let me know. Me. Yeah. For you sure. listen, honestly, you have to let me know how you feel for like, sure. within a half an hour because it, uh, I was not a believer. And I, I honestly, just just the sugar craving was gone. Wow. And I actually thought at first when I was told about it, like, oh, you know, it's going to taste like chocolate, you know. But I, what she meant was those cravings will will be gone. But That's I, amazing. I can't eat broccoli on its own. I definitely need to have a dip unless it's steamed and I have it with my dinner. But yeah. raw, I need a little something, something. Or just right. a little olive oil, salt and pepper and, yes. and roast it. That's that's the bomb. That uh, And you know what's funny too? When you said that you never liked broccoli, I was like, get it away when I was younger. <laughs> get it away. Just the smell was a turnoff, that smell of broccoli. And now me too, I love it. Um, I want to broach the subject very quickly of the figure competitor in you. Uh, Uh For those of you that are listening, you have, uh, I could not believe the transformation uh, when I saw Renee. And if you have a chance, yes, Google it because wow, (laughs) wow, the dedication is incredible, was incredible. And so did you, did you win uh, like two titles or what, what, what happened oh, with so, all of So yeah. So titles would have been cool. No titles. I did win mm. though. My first, I did come in first place in my first competition, which was super amazing. But you know, this whole idea of um, figure uh, competitions, um, I was working with a personal trainer who happened to be uh, a professional bodybuilder and she used to do these competitions and 
when we were training, we became really close and she kept saying to me, you know, Renee, you should do a show. And Mm -hmm. I said, there is absolutely no way in the world that you will ever get me standing in a bikini in stripper heels, flexing my muscles on stage. (laughs) Like it will just never happen. It was like literally against everything that I believe in. Like it was just not who I was. And um, the more and more I worked out, the more I got, you know, into this really shredded, you know, shape and people at the gym, they kept coming over to me and they said, are you doing a competition? And then the more people started coming over to me, the more I was like, well, what is it to this competition? Like, what do you do? And I was around the four year mark of, um, of having been cancer free. And, you know, they say that five years is, you know, is a great milestone um, Mm. because you're, you know, you've passed, you know, for many, many points past, you know, the point of like higher, highest uh, recurrence rate. And so I thought, you know what, there might be a a really amazing opportunity to celebrate this five-year milestone with, with some way of proving to myself that I am now in control of my body. And so, although I already felt that with exercise, um, you know, I would, I, you know, I would literally do bicep curls and I would see my muscles grow. And so I I knew that I was in control of my body. Somehow the idea of incorporating the diet um, and literally, you know, doing the exercise, having your protein right afterwards, like just getting very, very regimented and scientifically like backing up the whole process of muscle growth um, just felt really empowering. Um, And so I decided to do uh, a figure competition and really what's involved with that is, you know, hardcore exercise, you know, six days a week where I was, you know, really strength, strength building. Um, and then, you know, probably about, uh, six months of very regimented, uh, eating. Mm. Um, and, uh, I still believe it or not, I eat, you know, similarly, I'm, I'm definitely not as regimented cause you can't survive like that. Um, but you know, I still eat pretty clean Um, and the, you know, the, the program is pretty much six days of clean eating. And on the seventh day, whatever day you choose, you have one meal that's, you know, considered a treat, right? Mm -hmm. And so your one treat meal is like pasta or pizza or, you know, Skittles or whatever you want. And so, (laughs) yeah. And so, you know, I kind of still live that way. I don't necessarily uh, reserve one meal, um, you know, and I'm not clean eating all the time, but I do sort of live this way where I'm, you know, fairly regimented with food, but I listen to my body more. So if my body wants, you know, junk two days or whatever, I, I do that. You know, I, I really believe in listening to your body, but I also believe that, you know, you, sh- you know, clean eating is really important. And once in a while, it's important to also have treats. Um, so I, I did, I, I, um, I was in a figure competition. It was an incredible experience for me. I felt totally in control of my body. I was really proud of, um, you know, my five year milestone. Um, and you know, the, the experience of getting on stage and, and sort of knowing like I beat cancer and I was back in control of my body was just, you know, really powerful for me. Mm. Um, it was a, it was a great experience and I ended up doing another figure competition. Um, you know, I think a, a year or two later, um, and I am 51 years old and believe it or not, I am, I am getting into the mindset of, you know, training again and oh. rocking my bikini. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, you know, so maybe when I'm 52, uh, you know, you know, rocking my bikini and stripper heels again. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, for, yeah, for sure. It takes um, a lot of discipline, but it, 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 does. It, it does. But it, the thing is, it sounds to me as though when you set your mind to something, you really can be very disciplined and work yourself through it or work your way through it to achieve what it is that you want. I, I used to work at a company called Twin Lab. Um, and they oh, did, yeah. do you remember Twin Lab? And of this course. was a long time ago, but um, I actually worked for the owners and bodybuilders were coming in all the time. And one of the men uh, that one of the brothers that owned the company, he um, and I worked together on their magazine. And so I was always around these bodybuilders. And I remember starting to take all these different vitamins and, but I, but I never got into the bodybuilding thing, although I was really into um, nutrition and learned a lot then, but the discipline 
the at the time yeah, I did not meet any men, oh, yeah. but, I mean women, but yeah, the discipline. Yeah, it's and, very. It, it is. It is. It's a wow. You know, it's a very. It is. It's a very focused, disciplined practice. Sure. And I, you know, and I'm, and I've always been that way. You know, you and you, you need to be when you, you know, when you're getting a PhD. Like there's so many times where you're like, I'm done with this. You know, mm. and and so discipline and focus is really, really important. And so those characteristics are, you know, in my DNA. Um, but I'm also goal driven and. I like setting a goal and um, completing it to a fault. Um, right. You know, I, I, I like that. But, um, you know, it, it's just there, there's so much power in our thoughts. You know, I, I'm really um, I, I often marvel at the power of human beings. And when they put their mind to anything, how powerful we, we all are. You know, we, mm. we think 60,000 thoughts a day, each person. And we have so much power and control and how we shape our everyday experience and how we, you know, we all in the world experience fairly similar things, right? Like some people have a little more or less of something, you know, we have, sure. we have jobs, we, you know, but for the most part, we all experience life in the same way. And we all mostly experience, a, a, you know, a relative, I mean, obviously, there's severe socioeconomic differences and all those things. But in general, we're all, all here in the world, right? And so, hmm. So much of our experience is just shaped by how we perceive it and, and what meaning we attach to it and how we, you know, how we feel about it. You know, you can be somebody who has very, very little, but how you see yourself and how you see the world um, determines your happiness. And you can be somebody who has excess and, and miserable, right? And so it's like so much power in our thoughts and, and how we, you know, see our experience in our world and... And I, and back to your original question early on, like how has, you know, cancer changed me? I think that, you know, one big thing is my gratitude, you know, and, and the way that I experience things. I've had a lot of adversity and, um, I feel, you know, I, I tell my husband, I'm the, the luckiest unlucky person I know. Hmm. Um, but a lot of, you know, what I've been through has also been, uh, you know, modulated by, by the way that I see it, you know, I'm, I'm very blessed. I'm very fortunate. And although I've had to experience a lot of things that I, you know, that at the time I wish I didn't, um, I am blessed, you know, and, um, I'm grateful for, you know, I'm grateful for the things that have come from having cancer. I'm grateful for the fact that I'm healthy and it makes my gratitude for the things that I could do with my mind and my body and my everyday experience, you know, it makes me much more grateful. Well said. Um, I want to go back to, I know we broached the subject about the Metamorphosis Center. Yeah. Um, during my research, I, I uh, had read about all of the different groups uh, that the Metamorphosis Center has. Do you still have those groups? And, and if you do, can you mention some of them or maybe some of the things that you do? I know that you've got individual groups, you've got um, group groups. I mean, I, 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 <laughs> I, mean I don't know another group groups. So yeah. So my group, you know, I, I came up with a whole composite of groups that I um, offer, you know, but it, it's truly, um, it's truly organized by the population that comes at the time, you know, in order to do a group, you have to have at least a certain number of people. So it's really, you know, whatever presenting issues are, um, are in my practice at the time. And, and if we have enough people to make a group, and so I have done groups with loss. I've done groups with eating disorders, uh, groups with um, helping caregivers of people who have Alzheimer's. Like I, 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 you know, people are going through heart conditions, Crohn's disease, breast cancer. Like I've done many, many groups. Um, so it, it really, you know, ha- has, to, has to coincide with, the, you know, the population at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the groups are, you know, a really important um, aspect of, of growth for many people, because some people shy away from sharing their experiences with other people, but other people really benefit from the sense of camaraderie and, um, shared experience. Mm. Uh, so, you know, they're not for every support groups in general, aren't for everybody, but for the people who do, uh, partake in them, you know, many people just have tremendous benefit, you know, it's wonderful. There was one that actually struck a chord with me, um, caregivers 
to family members with dementia. Yeah. My dad actually, <clears throat> excuse me, is is going through dementia and has for a few years. And my mom yeah. uh, has been his caretaker or caregiver. And it has been, it hasn't been an easy road, yeah. uh, you know, like being a mom uh, or a dad. It does not come with any manual. We all kind of have yeah. to figure it out for ourselves, speak to friends, family. Yeah. And uh, she, she's 81. Wow. And, and she recently joined an online group uh, with those people that are caregivers to others with dementia. And, and when I saw that is a group that you have at the Metamorphosis Center, I thought how wonderful that is, you know, to have for those, because I sometimes feel that it's the caregivers that kind of get lost in the dust. hundred percent. It is such an alienating, exhausting experience. Perfect word. Perfect word. Alienating. Not only for the caregivers, but there are people that just, I don't want to get into so much about mental illness, but I, I, I can talk about it because I did grow up with a father who had panic attacks and severe depression and he still does. And with the dementia, it's been exacerbated. Um, But I've seen 52 years of what my mom has gone through. And now she's got this journey and it's always been my mom, my mom, my mom. And I'm so happy that she did find this. And I was thrilled to see that you offer that. Yeah. And that, um, um, that's beautiful that your mom was able to, you know, find a a community for support. Um, and I, I think that the advent of apps and, um, you know, mental health, uh, opportunities on, on, uh, you know, social media platforms and on the internet is so, so important. Um, and obviously there's, this is a burgeoning field because mental health is certainly getting its, uh, rightful spot where, you know, we, we realize what an important uh, part it is for all of us. Right. And so mm-hmm. I'm so glad that your mom is able to, you know, to experience that because many times when somebody is caring for somebody who is ill, uh, mm-hmm. whether that be, you know, emotionally or physically, they don't always have the, the time to get out and go somewhere or, you know, be part of a group. And because part of their experience is they, they don't want to leave the person. They feel so responsible. They yes. feel like if they leave, something terrible will happen. And exactly, so, yes. and they don't have opportunities for their own self-care. So, you know, even becoming a member of a group is like a first step for many people uh, in a very positive direction to, you know, experience some level of self-care, you know, and I, I always tell my, my patients, you know, I, I remind them of the thing that we learn when we take a flight, you know, which is the thing that, you know, the uh, steward says, right, steward or stewardess, which is that, you know, before you put your oxygen mask on someone else, you have to put your oxygen mask on first, right? Mm. You can't take care of somebody else unless you're, you know, breathing properly, right? And so it's so, so critical for caregivers to get their own support so that they have enough strength and resources to, you know, care for somebody else. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, again, how you put it is, is perfect. And, you know, I think that that particular generation, um, you know, you can understand because, you know, your parents fall within that generation too. There's a, there's, there's a little more, uh, I can do it myself. I can do it on my own. I don't need help kind of thing. And it's funny how, uh, it's evolved, especially now with the millennials who, um, have literally brought out the word anxiety and panic attack and trigger even more to where people that are even my age can just simply say, Oh, I have anxiety without even feeling the shame of it. Or, you know, I'm going through a cycle of depression. Whereas before I grew up in a home where it was all hush hush. And even to this day with my dad, you know, he, it's very rarely mentioned um, the struggles that he's had because there's that whole no one, no one understands. And the thing of it is, it's very true. His generation and the friends that he's had, it's been difficult because they just don't understand it. And therefore they don't know how to approach it or have just a regular conversation. And yet he's still a human being, you know, just, you know, it, you don't have to be any particular person, but it's definitely becoming, I hate to use the word more common. This is the only thing I can come up with now, but I don't feel that it's people more have validated. to yeah, it's more, more validated. validated and you don't have to hide. Yeah. As and much the fact as you... that you're, the fact that you're doing a podcast and you, and you are talking about your own experience growing up, you know, in a family where there was anxiety or depression, like that models for other people, 
this, you know, this idea that it's okay. Right. And like, that's what we all need to do. We need to become a little bit more vulnerable and share our struggles because everybody struggles. Right. You know, and so when we, when we share our struggles, we get away from this idea of perfectionism and we get away from shame and all these things that, you know, when you go on social media, um, you, you know, you don't see, you know, when you go on social media, you see perfect bodies and perfect lives and, (laughs) Right. And, and we know there are so many, you know, detrimental consequences, you know, when people, uh, you know, compare their lives to the, these snapshots. Right. And so, you know, people like Simone Biles and, oh yeah, uh, you know, um, it's, it's very, very important. And and there've been many, you know, Michael Phelps, like he, he, you know, he talks about having ADHD. There are many people who are using their public platform in a really positive way to, you know, bring, bring mental health into, you know, into the public domain. And it's so critical and so important. Um, And I think the world is really changing, you know. I hope so. I mean, it would definitely help those people who feel like they're all alone and the stigma attached to it. It's definitely getting better. Um, and, And so with mental health, did you notice an uptick in, in patients um, with COVID? Oh my goodness. So I I will say, um, you know, much of your career as a psychologist when you're in private practice is like, you know, figuring out where the balance lies for yourself in like, what's a healthy number of people to see what's too much. I I will tell you during COVID, like, wow, everybody, everybody has been anxious, depressed. I see, I see children, adolescents and adults, the children were struggling because they were isolated and not social. Some of them were really experiencing learning challenges because not everybody's a visual learner or can sit on a computer all day and they felt isolated. And so I saw tremendous, um, you know, increases in anxiety and depression with children and adolescents and then adults, you know, they felt isolated. So my practice like completely became like overwhelming, uh, literally overwhelming um, during COVID and, and I still am extremely busy. Um, Mm. and so, you know, I'm, I'm very, very good at, uh, balancing myself and very good at, um, you know, trying to, trying to find a a balance that allows me to have self-care and, you know, remain calm and centered. But I will tell you that during COVID, um, you know, just the, the number, the sheer number of people in distress, I found it difficult to um, accommodate everybody because every, you know, people, it wasn't just like new people. It was people, you know, from years ago calling and, you know, Mm. and, and, and just wanting to talk. So it was, it was really overwhelming. Um, And, and I still think it's, it's a lot. People are still in this space. Um, And I do think that COVID will present challenges to mental health, unfortunately for years to come, because I think that, um, it did change uh, a lot of how people experienced themselves in their world. And I also think on a positive note, many people are reevaluating uh, the manners in which they want to live. You know, um, people are changing where they live. They're changing, you know, the, the rigor uh, of their day. And they're realizing that, you know, working 12 hours a day isn't healthy. Mm. Uh, I think more self-care. I think people were eating more with their families and having family game night. And they really enjoyed sure. that. Um, yeah. And they liked walking their dogs. <laughs> right, right. Right. And so, um, yeah, lots of changes. Yeah. You know what? But with change comes some really, really, really great, great, great things and more, more positive things. I'm not saying that, oh, you know, it's a great thing that we all had COVID because we're all learning more about ourselves. I'm just saying like with your journey with breast cancer and how many extraordinary things that came out of it and and everything that you mentioned before, it's, it's sometimes it can actually turn into being a more positive thing. A hundred percent. Right. A hundred percent. So now you'd think that Renee would slow down after all these accolades that she's achieved, but no, no, no. She had other (laughs) thoughts. Renee is also an author of Chemo Muscles, Lessons Learned from Being a Psycho-Oncologist and Cancer Patient. And just a little intro in her book, she looks back at her own experiences of her diagnosis. It's a book about coping techniques to help others face cancer. So clearly that time in your life cultivated other ways of viewing yourself in your life. 
Is there anything that you can share about your book with that was maybe a priority or priorities that you wanted to add into so other people could help themselves? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I thought that I was in a unique position because as I said, I was a psychologist in a pediatric cancer center for six years. So I worked very closely with children, adolescents, and families during their journey with cancer. And so I saw a lot from the practitioner or, you know, doctor standpoint um, about how people were dealing with uh, these struggles. Um, And I learned a lot about, you know, empowerment and ways that people are disempowered and coping techniques. Like I I researched a lot, but I learned a lot firsthand. And uh, and interestingly enough, Prior to getting my PhD, you know, you have to do a dissertation. And I actually did my dissertation on women with breast cancer, which is just a very bizarre, weird circle of life and circle of cancer. Um, Mm. I have no family history of cancer, uh, you know, but here I am. Um, On women with breast cancer, worked in a pediatric cancer center, and then then was diagnosed. But um, I was in a unique unique because, you know, I experience and then it was the personal experience so I I wanted to um, you know really talk about uh, coping techniques that I learned about and talk about that um, health professionals can really positively impact our journey through the medical experience um, I had so many incredibly caring wonderful people who helped me who made my experience much more difficult. And, you know, there are, there are really subtle things that I think that, um, you know, people need to learn when they're in the healthcare profession, you know, even our nonverbal, um, you know, our nonverbal language, you know, it, it contributes a lot to a patient's experience of what they're going through. You know, if I used to have, um, when I would walk into the pediatric cancer center, a patient's room, I used to have parents look at me and say, what do you know? And I'm like, what do you mean? What do I know? And, you know, when you're a patient and you're, you know, in the experience of being so, you, you're literally hanging on to anything like you're, you're, you have no control. And so you're relying on. And so when a doctor walks in, you know, you experience them as, as the one who has the information or the person who's going to make your child better. Right. And so right, you, you right. really, you really holding onto everything. So I, I became very aware of that as a psychologist. But then when I was a patient, you know, when I would deal with these technicians who, you know, wouldn't speak to me or would have these ominous looks on their face and would walk out, like it was really traumatizing. Um, and, mm. and things like even telling our story, you know, early on when I wasn't quite ready to share, uh, you know, details about my, my cancer, um, very well-intentioned friends and family had shared things with other people because they needed a place to cope. But at the time, it was incredibly disempowering for me because when you're going through your own trauma, one of the ways that you maintain a sense of control is having a story to tell yeah. it when you want, to tell it to whom you want, and to share what details you want. And so mm-hmm. I learned a lot about trauma, um, you know, like I said, both from a professional and, and personal standpoint. And I thought it was really important to uh, relay very specific research coping techniques uh, that I know were highly effective because they helped me tremendously and they helped my patients tremendously, um, as well as bring some illumination to how we should be educating all healthcare providers so that they can, in the future, treat their patients with a greater level of dignity and respect. That's incredible. I, I, that was actually the next question I was going to ask you that as as being um, a professional, uh, I, I could only assume that it, it you were talking about how um, you became empowered personally, but of course, being a mental health professional and helping others with it certainly um, helped. And I, I would wonder about if this was very therapeutic. Now, I, I know that you went through your journey mm-hmm. and the last part of, of the journey, I, not, I, I don't think you'll ever have an end to your journey. I think it continues. But the, the book um, seemed not only empowering for you and for others, but it certainly kind of, I, I would think, 
concluded everything that you've kind of done up until that that point to yeah. allow you to say, you know what, <clears throat> this is my own personal journey and I want to share it with everybody who's going through such a difficult time, especially coping mechanisms. Because a lot of people don't even know what that is, <laughs> what right, the word coping, right. I mean, you've heard of yeah. it before. Yeah. And I think that it, it's such an empowering thing for you to continue helping yourself and, and helping others. Was there like a, a shift or like a paradigm as you were kind of going through writing? Did it also enhance more of the coping or make you feel more empowered? Was there any kind of like a shift? That, that's such an interesting question because, you know, for me, when I first started writing this book, um, there was a, there was so much going on for me psychologically. And, you know, I, I was really at such a different psychological place. You know, I, I was much more of a perfectionist, you know, like so many different things. I wasn't somebody who shared struggles at all. And so I would say that over the years of writing the book, I noticed within myself, uh, my own identity changing where I allowed myself to become you know, much more vulnerable and allowed myself to become much more okay with my own struggles. And so I think that, you know, the book took me, I, I wrote it for, you know, a year or two, and then I completely shelved it. Um, mm. And uh, I, I wasn't really ready to sort of put myself out to the world in such a vulnerable way. And so I, sh I shelved it for several years. Um, and then around 2014, um, my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer, unfortunately. Um, mm. And uh, shortly after he passed away, um, I decided now's the time to, you know, get back to my book. And mm. I was kind of, you know, I, I was ready to sort of put that out to the world. And literally, that's when I had a breast cancer recurrence. Um, and so that was like my whole second chapter. And although I want you know, material for a second chapter. Um, that too was a really powerful journey. You know, I went through radiation and chemo and, um, you know, uh, and it was all very, young. you know, it was young. I first yeah. was diagnosed with cancer at 37. So, you know, I was young. Yeah. Um, but um, I think that by the time I finished the book, writing the book, um, so much about me had changed and the coping techniques that I mentioned, every single one of them, helped me on my journey. Every single one of them. I, you know, yeah. I, I talk a lot about humor. Um, I talk about this radiation playlist that I came up with when I was going through radiation, you know, like right. some of this is like sick humor, but like, you know, Oh, they, I, I know. <laughs> they I really mean, what, no, me. I mean, right. Whatever that, whatever can help you to get through it. Absolutely. And I, I, tr I true, you know, everything that I write about has been researched. It, humor does help us, you know, exercise does help us, food helps us. I mean, their human touch helps us. I mean, I, I list tons and tons of things that not only can empower someone during their cancer e experience, but through much of life adversities in general, like we all go through things, you know, we all need ways to cope with, you know, challenges that life throws at us. And, and every single one attitude and they're all, you know, clearly uh, demonstrated to help you know, and mm. so, you know, I, I practice them all on a daily basis. You know, I wake up in the morning and the very first thing I do is, you know, I thank God or the universe or whomever, you know, for giving me another day. And I, I yeah. literally live that way. And not because I don't feel like I'll have actually live in that space at all. Um, mm. But just because I'm grateful. I'm grateful for, you know, everything that I have. I'm grateful to be talking to you. I'm grateful oh. for this opportunity to, you know, to, it's for real. Like I'm grateful for you know, the opportunity to even be able to potentially help somebody else. So it's all gratitude. And, you know, do you, I just wanted to ask, do you journal at all? Um, it's funny. My, my journal, my journaling, uh, is sometimes just little notes in my phone. Um, I write a lot. Um, I write a lot, you know, of articles and I'm actually working on a second book. Um, but, you know, so I, when I journal, it's not necessarily like me getting in touch with my thoughts and, and writing like, dear diary, today right. I saw John <laughs> and he's so hot. It's not like that kind of journal. Like I did it's when like, I was like in middle right, school. Like, right. You wrote the big heart, Julie and John F forever. Right. <laughs> like it's not, it's not that. It's like more. How'd you know about John? Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's more like 
three o'clock in the morning or I'm just in the car and like a thought strikes me, I just write it in my phone in a little side note and they essentially become, you know, thoughts that are in some writing. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's what I do. Uh, okay, I just want to mention that uh, you can get Renee's book at Amazon.com. I'm going to actually head over there because I do not have a copy of it. And uh, I am really looking forward to reading it. I, although I do not have breast cancer, I'm still so interested in reading more about your journey, just reading your words, because you're amazing. And also, you know, the coping you, mechanisms. Um, so I'm going to just ask you one final question and uh, something to maybe leave us all with. Do you have any words of wisdom that you could share with us? Oh, words of wisdom. I feel so like what a podium for power right now. Wow. There you go. Something big to <laughs> More the empowering. Well, well, other than, other than this trick that like broccoli is, you know, if you want to talk with, like, cause that's like a pretty cool word of, of encouragement. <laughs> I, you know, I um, I have so many things. I guess you know this quote that I I like, which is that smooth seas don't make good sailors, right? And so hmm. it's a really beautiful thing for us to acknowledge uh, our struggles and um, the things we feel are our detriments, um, and understand that these are our gifts to that you know make us stronger people. Uh, you know, nobody wants to go on a, on a ship with a, a captain who has only been on calm, nice waters, right? And so mm. uh, you really want a cap facing difficult storms, right? And so I think it's, it's an amazing thing to, to know that you can steer your own ship, um, whatever life throws at you. Um, and throws really, really bad storms our way. Um, but, you know, we learn to cope and we learn to grow and we learn find strength within us that we didn't necessarily know we had um and we go and rock it so those are my words of wisdom well that was wonderful <laughs> um so, <laughs> that was that was just incredible i'm going to probably steal that one but i just i won't go. tell you i'm going feel it so <laughs> Renee, you're an incredibly amazing person i'm so glad to know you Thank and you, i'm Julie. so glad that you did this with me. Uh, you can find Renee on Instagram and Twitter uh, under the username Dr. Renee Exelbert. LinkedIn, uh, she is Renee Exelbert, PhD. And she also has a website, www.drexelbert.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, you really Julie. are. You're an incredible Beautiful person. Day. Thank you so much. Same to you.